Welcome to Season 5 of the podcast of The Urban Mystic. In this season, we're exploring relational spirituality, which is not rooted in character formation and instead in immediate relational engagement with God. It is a relational, mystical spirituality encouraging people to enter deeply into living and loving in relation to their own self, others, and God. We can't think of any better venture to give our lives to than this, and I'm sure you'd agree with us. But we continue speaking about our value for intimacy with God. I put forward that there is a profound difference between the faith as intimacy paradigm and the intimacy through relational engagement paradigm. The faith as intimacy paradigm has a low value for intimacy with God as there is no intent to cultivate relational engagement. It wraps the bow of peak experience around meaningful engagement with God and then defines such as being for those who are needy and immature. The faith as intimacy paradigm sounds awfully like taking a relational partner for granted while not valuing their presence or seeking their attention. The result is that the faith as intimacy paradigm is a very tough environment to make headway toward intimacy with God within. We're exploring the possibility and potential of a genuine relationship with God. Is there a bar or a standard for this? Are we expected to expect relational engagements with God to be few and far between, if possible at all? These are important questions for anyone seeking to cultivate a relational spirituality. Urban Mystic relies on your support to do the work that we do. Please consider making a regular or one-stop contribution via the, the link to PayPal in the show notes. Please don't forget to like this episode, subscribe to the podcast, and leave a comment on your favorite listening platform. Steve, I feel that when we talk, when we spoke about the value for intimacy with God, we're very, we, we touched on a number of different th- themes. God drawing near, God withdrawing, and things related to, to God's abandonments. Or abandonment is quite a nuanced and complex subject. Our faith is primarily about faith. It's mystagogic in that sense. It's about us having faith. And the story about faith goes something like this. An immature faith rests on experience and feelings and emotions and events. And a mature faith doesn't need any of them. So that what happens is, is you make you perhaps come to a commitment in in Christ or come to a commitment, a faith commitment, and there's experience and emotion involved in that. But you know, Steve, five, ten years down the line, you don't need experience anymore. You just need faith. And what happens is, is the idea is that God might start off encountering you, but then God slowly steps back to basically go, you don't need these experiences, just have faith. And that 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 in many ways we've got this paradigm about faith that creates a dichotomy between relational engagement with God and 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 almost a pure faith in God that doesn't need relational engagement. Uh, the kind of faith that drives a tension or a wedge between faith and experience and says things like you can't trust your experience, you can't trust your emotions, you can't trust your own judgments. So therefore, you can never know whether God is or isn't there. So God is always there. And I think that it's a dysfunctional formulation that doesn't enable us to value intimacy with God because to value intimacy <clears throat> with our faith and to have a heart relationship with the idea of God is not the same thing as to have a conflicted relationship with a God that comes and goes. Yeah, but let's let's just differentiate two paradigms then that I hear you putting down as a starting point because I think that might be helpful 
At least that's what I'm hearing you saying. So I'm going to give that back to you. So there is a faith. There is an there is an intimacy with God that is a faith-based paradigm. This is kind of what we're saying. There is an intimacy with God that is a relationship-based paradigm. The two are not the same, and they function somewhat differently. The faith-based paradigm is that intimacy is almost on tap. It's, it's, I want to say it's immediate, but I'm going to qualify that in a moment. It's ever-present, and it's premised on some of the almost sort of the doctrinal assertions, in a way, of God's omnipresence. If God is, it's a it's a faith statement. It's a belief. You know, it's a it's a point of belief on the list of faith statements that build the paradigm. God is always there. God will never leave you. God. And the reason it's difficult to to articulate succinctly is because I think it's said in different ways and different things are said about it in different traditions. So you have a tradition that says God is always there. You just have to be aware of it. That's somewhat different to a – that's a little bit more, in a way, experiential flavor – than far more of a dogmatic and what would be asserted as a biblical statement of God is always there. So your awareness or lack of awareness is is less of an issue. Sometimes you'll get this phrased in this very sort of colloquial statement, if you feel far away from God, guess who moved? I think that's probably 70s or 80s or 90s language, I think, even from, from church systems. With this idea of inherent in the faith position is you cannot get away from God. God is everywhere all the time. But there is no care to distinguish there between kind of what we've talked about previously as as kind of the life force that brings the world into being and, and sort of continues to create and sustain and a very sort of the the personhood of God that that shows up in ways in which we would describe as person embodies personhood and there are relational interactions. All of that is kind of collapsed together in the word God and the statement that God is always there. That's that's the faith-based paradigm. And I might be missing, I wanted to come back and qualify immediate. I don't mean immediate in that the feelings, because strangely enough, I think sometimes there are feelings. Again, difficult to to put together succinctly because different traditions will some will vehemently say, no, there are no feelings. It's just a statement of fact. That's what it is. But interestingly enough, people have feelings about statements of fact. So it gets hard to divorce those when you push into it. But anyway, God is God is there. That is the immediacy. God is always there. You only have to turn to God. It's kind of kind of there. God will answer. And then there's mechanisms that back that up. And sometimes the mechanisms I've heard described to me have a sort of, you can kind of start to, 
there's some self-to-self talk and actions that start to stimulate a feeling or a connection with this doctrinal statement or whatever. And so immediate is sometimes a time-sensitive thing, but I mostly mean it immediate as in that it's within, this is partly for me what is the faith-based paradigm, it's within your control. God is there and you can turn the tap on and off. Whether it's immediately I position myself back as a, at a rational level to the statement, God is there, God would never leave me, and boom, the tap is on, and there we are, I'm with God. Or you start to begin a sequence of mechanisms, or you begin a mechanism that brings you to being able to align yourself with the faith statement, God is there, God has never left me, there we go. That is my reality. That's the one thing I hear you putting on the table, right? In contrast, we are saying that there is a distinction, perhaps, between this creative force of God that that's and and this is something that I'm very attracted to, by the way, paradigmatically, this idea of the kind of the quantum mechanics of physics of God, this life force, this energy that flows through everything and keeps it connected and functioning and a trajectory towards you know the best and development. And there's there's so much here that I can't sum this up, but there's some phenomenal thinkers and workers out there kind of bringing this together. But we would distinguish that from where we would talk about relational presence, personhood, and the experience of a self to other, divine other connection. And we're saying that that is different in the relational paradigm. Intimacy hinges on a coming and going, on a tension of the relating experience between the two entities and in a way, the faith paradigm hinges on a relating to, at some level, a idea, at some level, an internal relationship, almost positioned as an idea in a way, or it's encapsulated in an idea. But from our side, we're trying to say there is an actual relational energy that goes around the giving and taking of giving and taking is that the language the 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 back and forth flow of energy there's 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 relational energy that happens there there's an exchange and this is not a this is not a uh not a commercial exchange this is not a you know a, a, yeah. there's a flow of value there's relational a flow of feeling yes 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 um in the same way that we would start to talk about potentially you know, any any human relational interactions in that way. But that's very important to understand that those part of that energy is a sense of the presence of the other and a sense of the absence of the other, as we've described previously in the same way. If you walk into the room and your significant other is there and you call them, it's very different to walking into an empty room calling them and they don't respond. That is a very real relational happening even though the outcome is different. And so that's partly what, I, what I'm what i hearing you put down. Am, am I kind of tracking? Let me just put it back as, as two statements to you, and then I think that will clarify it. The first is faith as intimacy, and the second is intimacy as relational. Yes. Is is the way that I'm, I'm, I'm seeing it and summarizing it, because... because there's a profound difference between your faith, 
your your faith equates with intimacy with God. And if you don't have faith, there is no intimacy. In a relational environment, I can lose faith in someone, but they can still arrive and speak to me and engage me. Yes. We can still go good. deep in conflict. We can actually go deep in the depth of missing each other as well. And yet that's still a relational interaction. Whereas whereas faith as intimacy is not the same thing because there we are filling in the blanks for for God for the other as someone who never speaks to us or engages us even. And I think that there's that's the profound difference between these two. That's good. So if if we put this down on paper quickly as an equation, the picture that comes to mind is faith equals intimacy equals relationship. But that is a misrepresentation of what we're saying. Just because the word intimacy is the is the uh, is is the same language, the same word. You know, it's the lowest common denominator on both sides, basically. We're slicing that down the middle and saying there's a way to understand faith and intimacy and faith and an intimacy and relationship. They're not the same thing just because we're talking about intimacy. Relational spirituality is not a faith-based spirituality in the sense that it's not, not in the sense that it's not about the faith as in, you know, there is a God, (laughs) But in the sense that it's not about the faith that it, there is a God, it's about the 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 ways in which that faith enables us to enter into relational engagement with God, or the degree to which it inhibits us. So it's a question as to whether this faith is a uh, uh, is it some kind of bridge that enables us to engage God, or is it some kind of bridge that, or, or is it a closed bridge? Is it a is it a is it a dead end that doesn't enable us to engage God? that often what happens when starting to talk about intimacy with God here, the reflex goes to all the poor examples, you know, what the experience of God looks like (laughs) in one context or another. And usually it ends up being our faith is the following, their faith is the following, ours is good, theirs is bad. And what does it look like? Well, in ours it looks like we know the scriptures, or in ours it looks like we have really intense emotions. What does it look like in the other? And and usually there's a there's a both are faith positions. They may involve emotionism or involve certain practices, but there's you know I would basically argue that in many situations, whether you take a look at charismatics, Pentecostals, mainline churches, the third wave evangelicals, all that kind of stuff, in many cases they've got a faith position, but they don't have a relational reality. I know that that's a a contentious statement to make <laughs> and and important to 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 unpack if we take scripture seriously and we start in the beginning we have to take god's drawing near and withdrawing relationally as seriously as we take the fact that god is creator and sustainer and i don't believe that we do i believe that we've got this this you know as you say we we bundle all these together and we collapse them together as though, as though, almost as though these three circles that we could draw as a Venn diagram have equal value and they're all actually just 100% on top of each other. But that's not the case. We don't experience God as creator. We've got no way of distinguishing whether God is or isn't the sustainer on the basis that reality continues. 
So to some extent, we, we take that as a, as a faith position because we can't establish that. And yet, God drawing near in person and God withdrawing is something that's fundamentally a part of the human experience. And I don't think that we talk about that at all. Well, you know, maybe not at all in the universalizing sense of the word, but at all in the sense that it's not something that we actually talk about. It's not something I experience us as talking about or exploring. It's definitely not in my experience widespread through um, religious institutions. And I think because of what we're trying to set out, I, 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 there are common denominators across different religious institutions that I've come across. And those common denominators are people with whom I've connected who speak to me about moments, experiences, conversations, repeated moments, longer relationship type language comes in, you know, this thing keeps speaking, keeps returning over time, you know, so that speaks to the consecutive and cumulative sort of ex experience that moves us towards talking about a relationship. You see the same person a few times, you say, oh, we're dating, <laughs> for example. And and so that, that means that we've entered into some sort of relationship. But uh, institutionally as a whole, yes, I, I think it's, it's, it's rare to come across this. But yet, when you talk within the human experience, again, it's, it's relatively rare in my mind in terms of people that I've interacted with. It's not... You know, if I meet a hundred people in a church, it's not fifty of them that tell me these kinds of stories. But there is very much this human experience of this thing that comes, speaks, acts, does, does not, and and yes, it's important to take that seriously and important to understand what it is and what it isn't. I think it's in that context that we we predominantly have the faith as the intimacy, as the paradigm that we're operating in, and then. I feel that people have an occasional experience of God that is then taken to bolster the faith as intimacy paradigm. And the problem with that is that you eventually run out of faith when you hit the real world and your faith doesn't plug the gap for it. And I don't think, oh man, this is really hard to put into words. <laughs> I, I, I think that the, the, form, the formula that we've got in one way or another basically goes, you're either raised in the faith and you get confirmed in the faith, but you don't need an experience of that to happen. You need education and you need to make it a heart commitment. Or mm. you're at some kind of a church or worship event and you have this like all eyes are closed, <laughs> every head is bowed, you know, the music is playing, the lights are dim, you know, where's that hand? You know, you've got that whole experience. And therefore you make an adult commitment, you make a faith commitment, you're moved by faith, right? Now, between each of those, the one may involve the manipulation of the conditional culture, and then the other one involves the manipulation of the conditional event. Or you could look at it and say, the ones are genuine coming to faith and so, and the others are genuine coming to faith. And we can see that depending on the perspective that we're coming from. I mean, I know I know many people that knock the mainline church tradition stuff and say that's not a genuine coming to faith act. You know, you've got to have this uh, sinner's prayer thing where you're, you know, again, the lights are dim, the music is playing, <laughs> every head is bowed. 
you know, so so without unpacking each of those too much and just just making reference to them, in each case, the one or the other case, you're dealing with the faith as intimacy paradigm. In other environments, people come to <coughs> faith in something like the Alpha course as a subculture or a ministry time experience, like within the vineyard or New Wine or amongst any third wave evangelical evangelical churches that adopt that approach to to ministry time where there's this tag on at the end of the sermon and you have an experience of God. And often in that same context, you have someone experiencing God and saying, this God that I believe in is real because I've experienced this God. Mm. And in both cases, well, in each of those cases, like all four of those situations, you still have the faith as intimacy paradigm dominating because the answer is genuinely we don't chase repeated experiences like this. We don't chase experience and phenomena. We don't chase emotionalism. We don't hype things up. We don't make things happen. So although you can have an experience like this, you've got to leave these experiences behind in order to have a pure faith. Even where these things are introduced, where, where, where an immediate engagement with God is introduced, the language of the peak experience comes into play. The language of coming to faith and the importance of experience in coming to faith comes into play. But the importance of faith in the long run overshadows continued relational engagement and overshadows building a, a, a spirituality that's rooted in relational engagement. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. And so I think if if I'm hearing you well, part of what we're attempting to do is I don't know if I want to use the term rescue, but that's what comes to mind first. It's definitely to be very clear about the difference. And and I think what 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 I hear you saying is if I break this down into two basic steps, first thing we talked about was the difference between the two. Now, second step, we're talking about when the faith paradigm recognizes the relational paradigm, but then eats it for breakfast very quickly so as to stay the dominant paradigm. And so even when, when, when we understand step one, that they're very different, and the faith paradigm will tell the relational paradigm, that you don't exist, you're not real, you're not important. There can be a second situation which the faith paradigm will kind of nod to the relational paradigm and go, okay, well, we can't ignore the fact that there are some crazy people in our group that sometimes say these weird things. And so we'll just incorporate that across. We'll 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 just bridge the gap there and we will pull them into the faith paradigm through saying. Yes, sometimes strange people do arise in every generation and they have this kind of experience, but it's a mountaintop experience and you can't rely. And so immediately there's, I don't want to go as far as that, it's almost like a gaslighting of the reality and saying, yeah, I mean, that's good and everything else, but you can't really rely on that and you can't trust that. And it's it's not something that you can, that you yourself can replicate. And I think that is a very, very true statement but misleading. I'll come back to that. Let me park that for a sec. And so for a number of reasons, just move across here. It's safer here. It's easier. We've got a very good paradigm worked out. You don't need to think too much more. You don't need to, to fear much more. You don't need to be anxious about other experiences like this. You can just talk it down to. Often and early on, there are these things, but they will die in the same way your dreams do. And then you too, 
<laughs> can go and become a second-rate accountant in you know room 52 and sorry if you're an accountant listening it's just an easy stab you know and you can let your dreams die and just become part of the establishment basically sure i like the way you said that now the true statement that's misleading is that yes you can't replicate that it's not possible on your own which is i think that's the work of the faith paradigm is to to prioritize the things that are easily replicable replicable from in a one-sided way and so again that's difficult because it's it plays out across individuals but also groupings of individuals so at an individual level if you read the bible and you read the bible in such a way that you project your voice out into the scriptures and back through the words of the scriptures to yourself you hear god's voice and as long as you project your experience your expectations well enough and i think we are crafty enough do i really want to go down that road maybe as human beings that 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 we do we do it all the time it's a, it's a basic psychological survival trait of human beings is to protect themselves psychologically and often great love or great pain is what enables us to move through that and see another version of reality but we we look to make the space around us as comfortable as we can i get it it's natural blah 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 doesn't always completely serve us though and so that happens through Bible, through prayer, through church attendance, through serving, through there's a number of mechanisms that allow us to keep that cycle going as individuals. But then as group also, I think we reinforce that together when we serve together, when we when we listen to a message about how important the Bible is and God will speak through the Bible. There's group affirmation and these mechanisms, I think, that allow us to keep on this treadmill of self-replicability. It's probably not a phrase, but that it allows us to keep just going on this hamster wheel of, well, I have, you know, I've got two hands firmly gripped on the wheel. I'm I'm in the driving seat and I can just keep churning this over for years and years and years and years. And it does serve to a certain extent. It really does. And I I've met people who seem to be really genuinely happy having done 30, 40 years of this sometimes. But I'm not sure that that's everything. And so the reason you can't replicate that on your own is because it's not a one-way street. It requires two. And so unless you have kidnapped God and you've got God tied up in a basement somewhere and you go down every now and then with a gun and say, God, love me. And God goes, okay, well, I'm too scared to do anything else. So oh, I love you. And then you, you know, you feed off that as if that's a wonderful you know, pure interaction, of course, that isn't. That, I think, is part of, for me, what I feel is the stench of the faith paradigm, is it feels like that. It's like you've kidnapped God and you're forcing God to stick around and, and be part of this charade. But a real relationship doesn't work on coercion like that, manipulation, real, real deep relationship. Many relationships do, but I'm talking about like, genuine authentic like how can i describe it when you really really dig down to the heart two people are completely free freely continue to choose each other to do the hard work to show up to to be honest to seek the better of the other and themselves the relationship blah 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 there's a lot more authenticity there 
than people who are trapped in relationship, manipulated, coerced, whatever it is. And that's the relational paradigm we're talking about, where you can't replicate an experience with an other unless the other is actively involved. Because the only way to replicate that is through fear, manipulation, coercion, whatever it is. And that's the kidnapping analogy for me. And so that's a very true statement that, you know, this might not happen again. That's part of the risk of a relationship. But it's misleading because it suggests that your only option is to go, well, there we go. That's a mountaintop experience. I'm going to go for the faith paradigm where I can be more certain. But it's also, I think, it's it's where relationship goes to die to some extent. And I mean, the irony of that is that perhaps that in the faith paradigm, we can be so in control that that God really is not free in and of God's self. And I think something you said earlier reminds me that just because you tell somebody how to be doesn't mean they have to say, oh, yes, Steve, I'll be like that. They can say, no, fuck you, that's not me. And so even in the faith paradigm, I, I have... I feel as though I've seen moments where God does seem to break in and go, surprise, motherfuckers. <laughs> you know, I'm still here. <laughs> this is who I am. This is what I'm doing. This is how I am. You know, you, you can't control me. And so the risk is to stay in the relational paradigm and go, maybe that will be the only great mountaintop experience. Maybe it's a foothill experience, though. And maybe the first time you get to 3,000 feet when you climb Everest, you think, holy cow, how could I ever go any higher? And then you acclimatize for a bit, and then you do go higher. And then you come back down again for a bit, and then you go up again. And the misleading part for me of the whole faith versus relation in that thing is that, yeah, but you can't live up at the top of the mountaintop all the time. And so, therefore, you must settle for the non-relational and the boring and the safe. Where I go, yes, but relationships are are multitudes of different altitudes in this experience. And so, of course, in any relationship, I can't live on the top of Everest every single day. Of course not. At some point, you have to go to work. (laughs) At some point, you have to, I don't know. I spent my week looking after sick children. That's a very like foothills experience for anybody else out there who's a parent and knows that it's, it's, I think, I think you possibly have to go deep into the valleys there. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. But, but there are, there are variety, there are varying altitudinal levels within relationship and that's part of relationship. And that's what we're talking presence and absence. That is a, That is a natural ebb and flow within relationship. And if you force someone, I think, in my experience, bears this up, unfortunately, and I see it in other people's experience. If you force someone to try and live on the top of Everest with you, then they will leave. But if you won't go up Everest with them either, they're also likely to leave if that's where they want to go. And so you have to figure out that negotiation about where you're going to constantly meet each other, sometimes in the boring mundane getting on with life, sometimes in moments of ecstasy and connection and authenticity, and that can take on a number of different guises. I don't think you have to settle for, oh, well, 
I'll just go for the safety of the paradigm where I'm constantly in control. Because I think then you're constantly all, all alone. And you're continuing to tell yourself, you need to tell yourself that you're not alone and try and convince yourself that you're not alone. But all you hear is the echo of your voice coming back. And that mocks you. And that's a horrible feeling to have to really, really engage with. And I think that's why churches, this is a bit of a tangent, which I won't pick up on, but I think that's, that's why churches are very good at distraction sometimes and providing a whole number of things to engage yourself with so that you don't have to deal with the fact that you are existentially alone. And maybe there's another way. I feel like we've got a number of unhelpful, how should I put it, like perspectives on this this kind of experience with God that I don't think reflect what genuine intimacy is like. Because if I said to anyone that the intimate experience that they had with someone was a peak experience and they could possibly never experience it again, that wouldn't make for a satisfying relationship. If, if a couple operates as though intimacy is only ever accidental and spontaneous without any predictability, again, that doesn't enable the cultivation of genuine intimacy. If intimacy is only ever expected and understood to be one-sided and initiated and fulfilled by one person, that is definitely not a healthy relationship. And yet that's all, those are all languages that we use for, for God. For, for intimacy with God or a relationship with God. Because by speaking of, a, of an engagement with God as though it's a peak experience and it's going to occur early on and then perhaps several times and then but mature later in life, you're never going to have it again and you can't chase and you can't find it. Oh, well, that's not a very healthy reciprocal relationship, is it? If it's only ever accidental, you carry on going about faith in life and then, oh, look, you bump into God having done something. Oh, what does that do? Well, it supports our faith as intimacy paradigm. That's what it's there for. Again, that's not that's unhealthy. And furthermore, if it's only ever one-sided, how do we have intimacy with God? No, Steve, Tim, you can never have it. Intimacy is only ever rests on God. It's only ever God that can make it happen, initiate it, and then fulfill it for you. Well, I'm sorry, that starts to sound like a very dysfunctional relationship again. Part of the problem is that we've got this language about God and what it means to experience with God that, that actually doesn't reflect the reality, I think, of either what Scripture puts forward or what people report from history in terms of their experience of God. And I think that if we carry on modeling our ideas about what this means on, on, on ideas that actually aren't rooted in those experiences, then we carry on supporting the faith as intimacy paradigm especially when all we have is the horror stories of how abuse and manipulation takes place. If all we're doing is countering that, what we're doing is, is we've basically got the spiritual boogeyman and then we've got this dysfunctional picture of what intimacy with God means. You know, or what, you know, well, I mean, I, I don't think the language of peak experience, let me put it this way, I don't think the language of peak experience, accidental or one-sided in any way reflects intimacy at all. And I think it reflects a low value for intimacy with God. Because basically it says you can have a peak experience, but you can't enter into the depth of a genuine reciprocal relationship. 
And and I, I quite frankly think that part of what we're trying to do here is call bullshit on that yeah. as a as a paradigm. It's not as it's not satisfying. It doesn't work in any relationship. Why is it so prevalent in our, in, in Christianity? Why is it prevalent to such a degree? that when people do look for experience, experience meaning relational engagement with God, do we push them away from it? Why is the immediate reflex to say that people can't trust that? There are so many things here that I feel evidence the problem that we have, but because of the way our language is all bundled together, it's very hard for us to wrestle this out and come up with a clear uh, articulation, you know, like a clear... I feel like the problem is clearer than the solution at this stage is what I think I'm getting at. I hear you. I hear you. And it does require a huge amount of energy and effort to keep wrestling out the different strands of what this is and making sure that they they remain laid out straight and, and easy to differentiate and to distinguish which is which and what are they saying and what are they not saying and what does and does not touch on the others. I realize why I went down that tangent. <laughs> yes, go for it. It's because I really like what you said about the misleading statement, that the misleading statement is you can't replicate the experience. The language of peak experience, accidental and one-sided, all reinforces the fact that you, Steve, meet some, we can't, we can't pursue this, we can't make this happen. And it's true, no, no individual can make this happen. But there's two persons involved the human person and the divine person, if both have an interest in each other and both want to pursue each other, you can cultivate an intimacy. You can cultivate relational intimacy through regular pursuits and regular engagement and regularly spending time together, regularly communicating. The question is, to what extent do you want to do that? Do you want to cultivate an intimacy that speaks of peak experience, that says so that it can happen once or twice in my life? Do you want to cultivate the kind of relationship that says it's accidental and I can bump into it, but what's important is to have faith and keep going? Or the kind of intimacy that says, yeah, if you're interested in me, I might respond. You know, it's one-sided, but but I actually don't have interest in you. Like, like is, uh, is that what we're settling for? Because if that is the case, then that reflects a low value for intimacy with God. I think a high value for intimacy with God says, holy cow, God, <laughs> holy shit is probably a better exper- expression, right? <laughs> as, mm. a, as a Western Christian rather than <laughs> picking yes. for Hindus, right? <laughs> you know, if, if we have a, an experience like that, by, you know, like, by God, man, shouldn't that <laughs> set a bar or a standard for what relational engagement can look like? You know, I, I think anyone looking back at the earlier experiences of intimacy and who doesn't have it later in life in their relationships genuinely feels the loss thereof and a yearning for it. And I think in our spirituality, a lot of people are left relationally dysfunctional, but as you mentioned, gaslighted, into the position where they've got to accept this paradigm. Why? Because it eats, it eats up anything that challenges it. And it eats up any any language of relational engagement or any desire for relational engagement because it keeps presenting the narrative. You can't trust this. You can't rely on this. You can't have this. You don't deserve this. You're a sinner. 
I like that contrast. I'm just kind of listening through it well in what you're saying. So on, on the one hand, we might posit there's kind of a control element around the replication, and, and that's the um, – you can't replicate this, but this we probably can, so it will give you a certain amount of control around what happened to you and sort of positioning yourself and and projecting a way forward for yourself at the individual level. And then I'm aware, obviously, there's a group level there, which I won't touch on yet. But then your language of cultivation on the other side is really, really helpful. And so that for me goes hand in hand with the statement of you can't do it on your own because a true authentic relationship will reject that kind of control orientation. But as you say, relationships thrive off cultivation. So just because you can't control both sides of the relationship, what you're putting down, which I hear you saying is, it doesn't mean that you can't do anything. And I think that's part of the lies. Well, you can't do anything there. So just come and settle here in this. But there's so much that you can do around, as you say, to cultivate a space where a relationship will thrive, even two people in disconnect, where one of them starts to work towards cultivation. You can start to see shifts happening, um, creating an atmosphere, starting to serve, starting to pay attention, starting to listen, show up more, plan things. I mean, I'm just thinking through the nuts and bolts of a human relationship there. Um, and I like what you talk about in terms of, to me, I get the picture of the taste, right? The, the mountaintop experience. That I don't think I've ever met anybody who went on into, let's say, a, a, a medium to long-term relationship with another human being, right? It didn't just last three weeks or six weeks or whatever. It, it, it actually started to move somewhere. I don't think i've met anyone i'd be interested who said yeah they're okay like the coffee was great but yeah could have done without the company it was okay and then they saw the person a second time and were like yeah ugh, it's all right <laughs> there's often this kind of this buzzing this fizzing this ooh, this is exciting there's something here there's a connection and i think that happens in not just in romantic connections i think it happens in good friendships i think it happens uh in, in all sorts of different ways and shapes i mean i can remember playing basketball I, this was a sport that i loved in my in my misspent youth and then much of my 20s playing and there were a couple of guys that i played with it was just something else when we connected to play on the court, it was it was like electrifying. There was something that happened there in that connection. And that wasn't romantic. At least I don't think it was. <laughs> you know, there was a connection between us in terms of what we were enjoying and what we were giving and receiving with each other in that moment. And, and there was really, there was a taste there when it started that made me go, I want more of this. And that for me is the joy of the mountaintop experiences is that there's a taste. But what I hear you saying is the taste shouldn't be everything. There's a, that's a red flag in a relationship. If the first three weeks are amazing 
and everything afterwards is just a fucking huge slog uphill. Yeah, it's 40, 50, 60 years, you don't really speak. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, right. And does that mean, because you see, that's one of the things that I want to tease out. Does that mean, because again, my reference is human to human relationship. Does that mean that you have to go back? Because I think that's also part of the subtle misleading here. Does it mean that you have to be able to go back and relive exactly that moment two years from now for it to be real? Do you have to visit that exact mountaintop? How can you? How can two humans who met for the first time, had an amazing first experience together two years down the line when they are different people? They've grown and developed and faced different challenges in those two years. And so they might not be completely different people, but they are different. How can they ever recapture that first meeting? They can't. It's impossible. You cannot recapture. To live in the past is also death of a relationship. But you can have incredibly enriching, enlivening, authentic, mind-blowing experiences together on and on. And I think there's a sense of, there's this wonderful, uh, it's, it's a, joke from South Africa. So it comes originally in a South African language in Afrikaans, but it's an old man and an old woman walking down the beach together. And the old man is looking at all these beautiful young bodies in bikinis running past him. And he said to his wife, you know what? It's really the, it's the small sticks of wood. I'm translating as I go here in my head into English. It's the small sticks of wood that really get the fire going. And then they carry on walking for a while. And at some point she turns back to him and says, yes, but it's the thicker pieces of wood that really cook the food well. And it loses a little bit in the translation because in the original language, it speaks about a richness of a meal that has been cooked well. Not a, This is not a flash fried meal in two minutes. This is cooking a really good stew with deep flavors over a couple of hours and if you think about it well you can't start a fire with huge chunks of wood you can't you need something different and that is correct at that point and then for a meal to really really grow and i really like food so this works for me as well <laughs> for, it, for it to have body and depth of flavor and richness and texture and all sorts of things you you really work at it over a while and yeah, it just reminds me of that, that there are differences in the experiences as they can often mature. And often that goes through cycles of sometimes it's better and then it's worse. And then you come back out into even better. And then sometimes things can go badly. And so it's all sorts of things that happen in human relationships. But it is a lie to say that you can have a mountaintop experience at the beginning of a relationship. And that's never on the cards again. And I'm 110% with you. That is not a relationship I want to be a part of. And I don't think, I don't think, despite some of the difficulties that I feel play out in my relationship with God, I don't feel like that's what's on the table. That it's a once-off flash in the pan woo, to kind of get you hooked. And then after that, you have to shackle yourself to the faith treadmill. And just keep going round and round in circles, churning out the same crap and distracting yourself from, for me, what is the central question? 
is this God really there on the other side? And is it possible to have a mutual, mature, life-giving relationship that can grow and develop over time and come to kind of a richness and a fruition um, that I think the faith paradigm can't provide, I'm afraid to say. You know, we've, we've, we've asked a number of guests about their early experience of God and and a number went to comment on, on, on their more recent experiences rather than just their first early experience. But when they talk about those experiences, I hear their voice change, <laughs> I hear a very different emotional side coming out, and, and, and they really relate the impact of that experience echoing throughout their life, like retrospectively and into the present and carrying them into the future. These peak experiences are pretty darn significant in the role that they play in people's lives. But I think I think when we analyze those peak experiences, or what what is reported as as peak experiences by the faith as intimacy, you know, from that from that paradigm, when we an- analyze them, it's got all the care and attention of of this creator and sustainer that we believe in, turning focused attention and presence to someone speaking to them directly and immediately, but with a clear sense of awareness, an awareness that this is, this, is, this is God turning attention to me, to engage me. And I don't see why on earth <laughs> we're left with basically going, yeah, that's good enough for some, but the vast majority of us don't need that. That's not what our faith is about. And that that leaves me often speaking of Christianity as a as a faith that's ostensibly about a personal relationship with God, but is most conspicuously and curiously known for God's silence and absence. <laughs> because I feel like that's what the faith as intimacy paradigm gives us. It it doesn't give us relational engagement with God. It gives us faith. And says we've got to hold on to that and prioritize that. I realized at one point in my life that God had been breaking in to engage me and I could reciprocate. And I think what these experiences teach us and they show us, and certainly that's actually what the spiritual greats report in history and what they argue for, is that those peak experiences each and every single person can have. And that's not the same as the language of, oh, well, turn your faith on and God's there. Turn your faith off and God's not there. That's not what it's about. What it is about is, is is speaking about the fact that 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 God engages people across the board, from educated to uneducated, from rich to poor, from the left side of the political spectrum to right side of the political spectrum. You know that 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 and and that in each of those cases, God actually isn't validating the person's position or their cause or you know even the institution of the church. God is actually genuinely meeting with people. I think that there's a there's there's a difference with some, and and I don't think that we stand alone in this. I think many of our listeners actually share the same desire, and that is to recognize that in their own lives, recognizing that there is a peak experience, and then basically saying, why can't that be more normative? Why can't this be cultivated? Why can't this be a regular part of my life? If this is a relationship, then that kind of depth of relational engagement should be more frequent. 
and I think that's 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 really what I feel we we were aiming for and arguing for. That that it's not about replicating a particular experience, as you say, at an early point in in in, in life, but it is about the ability to re-engage God as someone who becomes present in an ongoing fashion, in a reliably ongoing fashion, not just as a matter of, well, who knows when God's going to come next? You know, God is just a wanderer. You know, <laughs> like, who knows? I can I can set a table setting every year for God and maybe God will come back or once a week when my prayer time or, or whatever. And, and maybe, maybe, I mean, who knows if God's going to come back? That's not the game that's being played here and that's not, was put on the table as a genuine spirituality for us either. You know, in, in fact, as much as we refer to, you know, Dante's Paradise Lost, that is a medieval myth, vastly defines our spiritual landscape. But the reality is that 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 if many of the people post-Garden of Eden are reported as having a closer, more regular, and more consistent and more significant walk with God than what Adam and Eve are reported as having. And and we need a spirituality that's based on that, not a spirituality that's based on the notion that, well, that was as good as it gets and we'll only get there when paradise is regained. I don't think that that's the good news. That's not what we've been given. That's very, very good. I want to drill into that. Just a question of in which order. <laughs> <laughs> so I, I really like that sort of post-Eden picture, right? Um, and I'm using that as a theological statement rather than a chronological statement, just to be clear. I want to come back to what you were talking about earlier. God is the wanderer. Because I think that's part of what we've been talking about with this whole, this idea of presence and absence, right? So I just want to approach this well, carefully. So, any 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 good relationship carries with it a certain level of let's call acceptable expectation a relationship that is mutual there can be reasonable expectation that if i call you respond that if i say i need help you'd come if i say I love you, the person says, I love you back. That there isn't this help void. I love you, void. <laughs> you want to watch a movie? Void. <laughs> right? That there's a there's a reasonable sense of expectation. But that expectation is not, just to be clear, that's not control. That doesn't void the idea of two autonomous parties that have agency mutually collaborating together to build something that's sort of mutually reinforcing and uh, rejuvenating and replenishing for each, but does not, it doesn't exclude the fact that they're still autonomous agents. There's, there's this dynamic interplay between the two. So you can then push into, and this is a question for you, push into what? What do you mean push into push into what? What does that relationship look like? If the accusation is here, but you won't have this repeated mountaintop experience, then what are we pushing into? Are we saying, well, screw you, we will have that. We will 
every week on the hour, Friday at 8, have a repetition of that first mountaintop experience every week for the rest of our lives because that's what relationship is. No, that's not what we're saying. There's something else. What is that? But then you go on to say, it's not as if, you know, we set the table and whatever, once a week, once a month, once a year, we set the table and God is not reliable and doesn't show. Like you say, as if God's just a wanderer and there's just, who has a relationship with a wanderer? They come and go as they please, they do what the hell they feel like. That You can't speak about that in relational terms. So what is the relationship, the dynamic between presence and absence that straddles expectation, reliability, repetition of relational experiences together, as well as sometimes you set the table and God doesn't come. Sometimes we call and God doesn't answer. And all of that even needs to be teased out as people have been saying, yeah, but what if God does answer, but you're not listening? Or what if God was there all the time, but you didn't see? And I think there's all those elements and layers to it. Yes, absolutely, we could look at. But if there is this big blocks picture, this ebb and flow between presence and absence, what does this relationship actually look like? Where on the one hand, I can expect God to come when I call. And on the other hand, God is a big boy or girl and can choose not to. And I can say help. And God says no. Or says nothing. Um, and then perhaps if we have time, that we can come to this post-Eden like exile picture thing, which I think is hell of a fruitful. So... Anyway, like I don't know if it's, can you do anything with that, but like, what do you think about that 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 tension between those? And I'm looking for a third element, to be honest. <laughs> I really like what you're saying there because because a relationship does include two persons. That even if you're in the same place, you can turn your attention away from each other. You can withdraw into yourself and still be present around each other. But there's a difference between that and and when the person gets up and leaves or when they return. And the dynamics are different because we've, 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 we've got a saying goodbye, <laughs> like culture, right? It's, it's not polite just to get up and leave sometimes. Well, I mean, sometimes it is, sometimes it isn't. But for the most part, if you're leaving and you're going away for an extended period, you know, you're going away for the day or a week or whatever, you say goodbye when you go. And when someone arrives, you greet them. And I think we've got a culture of faith that basically says when God arrives, we go, meh. You're back again, whatever. We can't trust you. <laughs> and God leaves, and you go, yeah, gone again. God's always here anyway, <laughs> right? <laughs> I, I, I think that the fundamental interplay between presence, God drawing near and presence, and God turning attention away and moving away and absence is vital. It's vital in human-to-human -human relationships or intimacy because you can't stay locked in the depth of intimacy 24-7-365, right? You can't do that. That doesn't work. No no relationship works that way. You, you, you both withdraw to your own inner worlds. You both go about doing what you need to do for the day. I mean, even, 
even the way in which you know you can you can brush teeth together you're still brushing your own teeth you could brush them alone there's, there's an appreciable <laughs> difference between all of those right tweetable tweet tim does not suggest brushing your partner's teeth i like that <laughs> yes <laughs> you, you know i i think yeah, I, yeah ba- basically the ebb and flow between presence and absence you know that you that you mentioned is a fundamental part of any relationship and it's an integral part of the human to divine relationship and the divine to human relationship. It's important for God to respect that we can withdraw from God's presence, and that's okay. You know, so I don't buy the the the, the faith rah rah thing. You know, like <laughs> about always being in God's presence. Like that gets a bit much, right? Being in being in most people's presence gets a bit much, especially if you're an introvert, right? You you got to back up sometime. God is arguably an introvert as well, right? <laughs> <laughs> so I think I think that's part of it as well that there there is a need in any relationship for that to be the case. But I think fundamentally what we're missing in that is a clear sense of when God draws near, because the faith the faith as intimacy paradigm doesn't have room for God drawing near and God withdrawing, of God sometimes speaking and sometimes not, of us having to seek God, wait on God, and then be able to recognize when God draws near and recognize and respect when God is withdrawing. So I, I feel like it's a vital part of every every relationship, but the faith is intimacy paradigm makes no room for it, is where, is where I feel I land. Yes, it does make no room for it. It's interesting. Yeah, I'm not sure if I want to tease the pull on that thread, but it has no room for absence, and yet it doesn't completely have room for presence either. And that's and that's why it, it yeah it tastes a bit like sawdust to me. So, and you know, if if you if you do that to someone for ten, twenty, fifty, hundred years, and you institutionalize it, like, are they going to want to show up? Mm, or they're going to mm. want to speak. Yeah, you know, and, and, I, and I think that's actually the culture that we're in because we've institu- institutionalized faith as intimacy for 1,700 years <laughs> at least. You know, that's the default context that we're in. It's a very hard environment to make any mm. headway in. Because yeah, that's if, true. Because, if again, if one party wants to show up and the other party doesn't, the party that doesn't carries the most power for defining what that relationship looks like cool um, that's that's a delicious tidbit but i'm going to leave that there for now i want to push back in the in yeah in the original direction there so then so what does this relationship then look like how can we be i don't know i'm not even sure what language to use here as i'm skipping between these two paradigms and trying to think like what makes sense what language belongs in the one and not in the other? What is interchangeable but needs to be understood well? So, how do you? How, how do we? Oh, damn it! I, I picture myself as a listener, going, "Great, okay, awesome." So, how the fuck do I do that? Like, <laughs> must I have confidence that I can engage relationally with God? Must I have confidence in God's presence? Because I think that's part of, like, that's a word that I feel like I'm borrowing from the faith paradigm, right? Like, 
confidence uh, slash control. But there is confidence in a in a relationship, potentially further down the track than when it starts. But expectation, perhaps another word, perhaps better word at the beginning then. So should I carry an expectation about God's presence? That if I ask, God will respond. That if I show up, God will show up. That if I'm looking for that, my first mountaintop or my third mountaintop or something that starts to become more of a rhythm between the two of us over time, what can I expect and where can I expect that absence will derail that? And how can I start to push in? What does that look like to push into the rhythms of presence and absence? What can that relationship look like? Sorry, is there a point for me to jump in? <laughs> okay. Yeah, 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 yeah. I mean, I'm still like wondering out loud, but I think I want to give it to you and then let's kick that around a bit because you know, I'm also thinking of the word cultivating that you threw out earlier. And I'm also very aware of the fact that there are some there's some parts of this conversation that are unanswerable because they are sort of in the first person experiential. They are that, you know, Brian McLaren's you make the road by walking it. So you actually just have to get on and do it. You you can't say to your friend, hey, if I date Sarah, what is it going to look like in a year? Well, fuck it, you just have to get on and date Sarah. Like the two of you got to figure that out. Or, you know, if I start this business venture, where will it go? Well, we can theorize all we want, but after a while you have to just get out there and see if anyone wants to buy your new cupcake. <laughs> and so there's all those elements there that I'm thinking through and going, okay, so then what can we say about that? If we if we leave the faith paradigm for a minute and just drill into this, what? Yeah, I'm wondering what, what would I say to a listener who asks those questions? And so I'm going to sidestep them and ask you. <laughs> <laughs> well, thanks, Steve. I shall uh, just beep out some words here. Like <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. I just shifted to fourth in my bus. And ran you I, over. I feel like I should uh, switch the spotlights <laughs> on and have it beam down on me now. I'm being interrogated. <laughs> yes. Well, let's do it together. But uh... So I'm going to start off and not pull any punches here. And I'm going to be brutal. If that question has to be asked, then clearly we're not starting with a sense of God's presence and then working out where, where absence and silence fits into it. We're starting from the position of silence and absence, and we're yet to uncover and discover what it looks like for God to become present, to speak and act, to draw near in person. I think the place to start is to recognize that if I'm asking that as a question, I'm speaking for me now, if I'm asking that as a question, it's because I don't know what God's presence looks like. If I'm asking for that, it means that I don't know what God's voice sounds like. It means that I don't know what any kind of consistency is there that I can that I can rely on. I, you know, I'm going to use I'm going to take predict out of that. No, no, let's put predict into that. If I know someone, I can predict their behavior well enough. I I know them. I can trust them to behave as the person that I know them to be. The fact that we use the language of peak experience, accidental, one sided can't rely on it, can't build this thing on it, It's not con God's not consistent this way, etc., etc. We either have to acknowledge that God is f incredibly unreliable and, um, and, and, and pitches up seldom, which cuts against our faith paradigm, 
all we've got to acknowledge is that there's something wrong with, with our engagement with God. Honestly, I'd start there, is, is starting with the, the idea of, of, should I carry an expectation of God's presence? Hell yeah, absolutely, for sure. I mean, aren't we saying that God is reliable? If so, uh, why in the next breath do we say you can't rely on God behaving consistently? We're basically we're basically ending up with Barnum statements, but not as psychic readings as as related to faith. <laughs> you know, if your faith is in tune, then you're in tune with hearing from God. Okay, I, I heard this in the Emperor's New Clothes story, right? <laughs> Isn't this the same thing when it comes to faith? So, so actually, so that's that's where I start. Let me let me stop rambling. I think as a listener, how do you do that? You start with the recognition of going, do I see God? Yeah. And you actually, you actually look. And you recognize that if you don't see God there, you must be able to trust that. You must be able to trust that you don't see God. If you can't trust that, how can you trust when God withdraws after you've seen God? The, the absence of God, the silence of God, the recognition that God is not here is a vital component, and I think that's primarily what's missing. The, the, the faithless intimacy paradigm has no room for it, but the kingdom paradigm, the kingdom theology paradigm, the biblical paradigm in that sense actually does. With Jesus, you're dealing with God speaking after 450 years of silence. In Genesis, you talk, you're talking about God withdrawing near in the garden, and they hear that God's about, and they respond, you know, et cetera, et cetera. It, the, the presence is noticeable when God draws near into an absence, when God becomes present in the context of God having been absent, that's when we notice that God draws near. So how do we start with that? We start with the, do I want this? And am I prepared to take the risk of it? Am I prepared to acknowledge that I, that I don't see it? Am I prepared to acknowledge that, A, I don't know if I can trust God, B, I don't even know if I'm going to like God when God pitches up, um, you, you know, so, so we can throw any of those around, which are actually relational things, and we can we can throw out the fact that do I do I like waiting? We don't like waiting in our culture and our context. If I'm going to recognize that God is not here, and I'm going to enter into a space and a time and say, God, I'm waiting for you to draw near, that is an uncomfortable space and time to be in. So, so I at least at a minimum have to have the sense that. When God does draw near, I'm going to be able to recognize that God is drawing near. In the same way that if I'm sitting here and someone walks into the room with me, I can recognize that someone has walked in. It's, it's as clear as that. And, and we, we often want to use the language of going, yeah, but God's not a physical being, God's not this, God's not that. Scripture is littered with, 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 with the language of the senses of people experiencing God drawing near. And... We can't say that we've got, a f we've got a faith paradigm that takes Scripture seriously and then says we don't take any of those kind of things seriously because the very book that we're saying we take seriously actually says to us we've got to take our experience of God seriously and we need to not only be able to rely on it, we need to be able to look for it and we've got to want it. <laughs> so so I, I'd start there. Is, is that a, I don't know, is that a good enough answer just to start off with or how, how do you, how do you well, feel about what I've thrown out? It's hard to give you a theoretical response to that because it's very interesting observing myself in response to what you're saying. Okay. If I have to be, just to honor your just really clear 
you call it blunt, but I think it's just, you know, very clear and to the point answer. If I give you kind of a, a temperature gauge on myself as I listen, I think, yeah, I feel it. What is it? I recognize within myself a feeling that God is actually quite fickle and isn't reliable and does kind of come and go as they please. And so that's interesting because I'm not entirely sure what to do with it, if I have to be very honest. So I could kind of skip over that and go, sure, yeah, absolutely, I can hear you, what you're saying. That's kind of on the money, but I, I don't feel like I can just skip quickly into that without just acknowledging. It's interesting to hear what you say because I don't think I've ever contemplated the idea perhaps at this level in terms of what you're saying like there's been a previous understanding of course god would be there etc etc but the last the last patch of my life has not been an easy one in some ways and i feel as though there's this this growing sense of god is actually unreliable and fickle and doesn't respond when you but it's yeah, I'm not entirely sure what that's doing within me just listening to you speak there, but there's something there that I feel like I just must acknowledge for, yeah, I don't know, transparency, authenticity or something, but yeah, something important there in what you're saying. So yes, at a second level, yeah, it makes sense, absolutely. Well, what else can I say in response to that? It's very interesting to see my own internalized sense of what what would it be explaining to myself, reconciling within myself the absence that God, God is just fickle and will do what God wants. But put against some of what you're saying, like how, what basis is that? to build some sort of deep relationship. And then it has me asking the question of sort of what part of I carried, what part do I carry in this current sort of state of affairs? That's very interesting. Sorry, that's possibly completely like left fieldish in terms of where you were going. Forgive me, but it's, it's very, very real. It's just interesting listening to you say that because I realize almost as I'm posing the question that I am embodying that question more than I intended. And I'm hearing your response basically. So that's very, very interesting to me. Um, interesting is not a big enough word, but yeah, go for it. Throwing it out bluntly like it did. I would be surprised if, if people listening didn't have similar, like real visceral responses in terms of their own, their own response to that. And it, it's a curious thing that I that I feel like I've, I, and I'm going to own this for myself because I I haven't I haven't really heard other people speak well on this, and I haven't dug the, the wells of what other people like is in the mystics and that kind of stuff say too much about this as well. But I really do feel that that we don't own the absence of God. And we don't own what it means for us to face God drawing near and face our expectations and our feelings about it. 
And so, so, so whatever the response that, that, that someone has to the question like you're having, that's the starting point. That's what's going to go onto the table. Because if I am at odds with God and God draws near and I'm not allowed to say that to God, something is amiss in the relationship and the meeting. And if God is God, which God is, <laughs> God's not going to arrive with a, without a sense of where I'm at. So why, why should I hide? I can hide because I'm afraid or I'm ashamed, you know, it's quoting Adam and Eve, or, or any number of other reasons. But, but if I can't start being real about where I'm at with my feelings in relation to, to God's absence and God drawing, yeah, how can I build a meaningful relationship? I'm just sifting through what you're saying as I think. I th- yeah, I think I'm hearing you. So perhaps in my response, you'll you'll be able to tell me whether I'm whether I'm hearing you well or not. I don't feel as though there's an intentional sort of hiding within myself from the absence question, or as far as I can tell, a hiding. Sorry, my, my statement wasn't directed at you, by the way. It was I was abstracting. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Cool. Now, just okay. Cool. But I'm also just interested, just in terms of perhaps just myself then, and wondering. I'm interested in why I see God as fickle, and something. And when you talked about the wanderer, also just. It obviously scratched the surface, and I'm just drawing that link now, but wasn't as clear as what you've just said right now in going, I'm drawn more to that wanderer picture, actually, of setting the table and not knowing whether God is going to arrive. And in a way, I can hear the distant echo of the mocking of the faith paradigm, (laughs) to be honest. (laughs) Ha, 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 ha. See, we told you. Like, that's a miserable journey to go on. It's all high and mighty and talking about relationship, good for you. Look at us. We're sitting down to good meals every day, you know, that we cook for ourselves and eat for ourselves. Look at you, you stupid bastard, cooking a meal for somebody who you don't know whether they're going to arrive or not. And I'm wondering why it surprises me when you say that God is reliable and that I can cook a meal and set the table for two and predict the behavior and expect God to arrive and wondering why in my experience of the absence I I am attached to the fickleness rather than a sense of the ebb and flow and the coming and going. It's, it's, that's interesting for me. Perhaps that's a little bit clearer as I'm trying to tease out why would I set a table for two and I'm already telling myself, well, there's no guarantee that God would arrive or not. It seems to just kind of happen on some arbitrary basis. And I'm confronted a little bit with your confidence with which you speak about the expectation. And so that's interesting to just, you know, I'm sort of, trying to do a lot of just stepping back and observing myself here in terms of what's happening and going 
what expectations do I bring actually to this relationship? And am I asking the question actually, not just project this onto a listener? What 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 is it that I could rely on in this relationship? What is the expectancy? What are the potential repeats, mountaintops? What is it that I can do to cultivate a relationship that would suggest regularity, perhaps, whatever that might mean, of mountaintop experiences, or the promise that there will be others, or the promise that there will be further deep and rich experiences? And see, a lot of this requires a huge amount of I guess unpacking of my history background, blah 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 blah. And that's that would be one of my fundamental takes on all of this is that none of this can be done theoretically in a background because the personal always derails that. You have to be able to take each person's story and walk through it. You know, why does why does God let people suffer? You can answer that theoretically, or you can go to the relational element and dig into each person's story and find out where that question comes from, et cetera, et cetera, you know? And so why do I put that on the table? Yeah, because I'm just interested in my experience now. I'm going, there's a lot that brings me to this point. And it's not as though I've had one experience and I've kind of been starving up until right now as we're talking. There are other experiences, mature. But interestingly, even in light of that, I'm going, why is my default mindset still that I would be setting the table and there's no guarantee or even high expectancy that the other will arrive, that they really do just do whatever the hell they feel like. And I can't predict their behavior. And yet in some ways I can. It's been more predictable on a group's basis. Like I find God more predictable when I feel as though I'm standing shoulder to shoulder with God oriented towards someone else than when I'm looking to stand face to face with God. There we go. There's that like there's a kernel statement that I can sort of pull out. That's a central thing. And that's interesting. Why? And that's very confronting. And that's what I couldn't get around when you said what you said and just kind of <laughs> gloss over that and carry on. So I just want to say thank you for being for being vulnerable with that. That's quite a um it's not what I was expecting by way of uh, what I threw out there at all. <laughs> <laughs> Surprise. So I'm somewhat mm. <laughs> yeah, I am somewhat surprised and somewhat disarmed by it. I Me too. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I mm. think on one level that that quest that the question transitions us from uh, the value for intimacy with God to prioritizing and practicing it, and and I, I think it's it's helpful That's to good. to almost frame it that way. In keeping with the value, though, of the kinds of feelings that you're putting on the table, because without a sense of valuing intimacy, you can't use language like fickle. Mm, mm, mm. or uh, tap into the idea that you know, perhaps God is more the wanderer, the unpredictable wanderer. I think this kind of thing only shifts when we take the risk of, of, of being, uh, how do I put it? 
this kind of thing shifts slowly over time. And in fact, our ideas and our feelings probably lag behind the reality of how we've been experiencing God. Because God is, is pushing in to a faith, into a often into a paradigm of faith that we've got. And, and we are so schooled into the idea that we can't predict this kind of thing that that's actually our default setting. You know, and, and I think that's part of the internal deconstruction that we've got to go through, the God rid me of God component. The, the idea of God that I'm bringing to the table is not the God who is. It's, it's my faith idol that I need to sacrifice to God. In, in a way that hits me very hopefully, you know, a, a, a memory that has just come to mind as we talk through this is I'm, I'm relatively sure that you're familiar enough with the, the shack, right, the story. And the three persons of God in that story, there is the, the mother figure, there is the son who is the carpenter. And then there is the, the younger female figure that, you know, as I understand it, represents the Holy Spirit. And I remember I never really got that person in the book. Because she reminded me of a certain kind of, let me call it like, it's too abstract to say feminine energy, a kind of, yeah, a kind of woman <laughs> that is just, how can I, how can I put this? Because I, I mean this this could come across really poorly and really badly. And so I'm trying to just position it well because that's not my intention, if I can say that up front. But who is really kind of, I, th I think of those words of Jesus, you know, like the, 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 the spirit goes where it wills. It's like the wind. And you can't tell, just does whatever it wants. It fr frivolous, really, is. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But And just. And just, yeah, it's here, and then suddenly it's right up in your face, and I love you, and then the next minute it's gone and does its own thing and comes and goes as it pleases. And, and you know, I've, I've, I've met people like that in my life, and I've seen that portrayed in enough, you know, media, books, movies. There's enough story around that of the male figure who's desperate to be connected to this female figure, but the female figure is too flighty, too wild. You know, that's the kind of like, and, and won't be held down. And without critiquing that kind of energy, because I'm all I'm saying is like in the book, that person, et cetera, it's, I don't quite get it. I do know it's not the kind of energy that I'm looking for for deep and long and meaningful relationship because there has to be some sense of commitment connection that often the wildness energy just it's completely circumnavigates and, and you, you just can't tie that kind of person down and, and even see even this is the, the weird thing even trying to describe that sounds like yeah but 
you know, that's what you want to do. Then you, you want to kill that thing and put it in a cage, and, and that's not what that's not what this is about. But there has to be some sort of reliability and commitment and whatever in relationship for relationship to flourish. And perhaps that's the the very difficult beauty of the Trinitarian picture is there isn't a, a sense in which God is wild and free and uncontainable. And that's very attractive, I think. But, but you know, I don't know many relationships or many stories of relationships where those relationships go the distance when that wild, free energy is the only one that shows up. I do know if it dies, I think you lose something really valuable. And so it's it's kind of it's difficult to sort of just tease out. But I just I remember that person and kind of going, I don't quite get you. You, you feel a little bit like you're going to be here today, gone tomorrow. And I I want some sort of commitment level energy that comes out of that, that perhaps it'll be here today and here tomorrow without you having to sacrifice your wild spirit, perhaps. But there's a wildness that feels like that kind of negotiation is not on the table, which is very interesting. And I'm going to park that for now. I don't think I need to tease it out any further. That requires some more thinking. But there's something there, I think, that I can put my finger on in terms of the fickle and what you, you know, what you what you're talking about there in terms of. Yeah, to use the descriptive fickle means to talk about some kind of interaction, some kind of connection, some kind of longing, etc. Part of the problem here is is defining firstly the the context and the and the and the kind of connection one's looking for, mm. because the language of Steve Tim, God is unreliable in terms of showing up to you one on one, is different to the language of oh, you're trying to end a Sunday service and you want God to be present in a public meeting how does god fit into that so so those two different extreme contexts have very different dynamics here we can't transpose the dynamics from the one into the other very easily so so that that requires some teasing out the other thing that you raise that is actually really important here is that we are dealing with a trinitarian being father mother son spirit and actually, we get to have a relationship with each and every one of the first persons of the Trinity. Mm. And I don't think that that's actually explored enough here as well. Because the relationship to the Spirit does have different dynamics to the relationship with the Son, and, with, and in turn, different relational dynamics to the, to the Father. And I don't think that we tease that out enough as well. So, so often it's a question of, so what does it look like? What does it mean? Well, we've got two different contexts between individual and corporate. And we've got three different persons, although one God. But, but again, we're just meshing all of this together. And then we don't have a clear idea of, of so what's the outcome? What are we actually looking for when we're talking about relational engagement with God between these two different contexts? And that's why I feel like in some ways the blunt answer is a starting point for the individuals, it's, but it's also the blunt answer is a starting point for the corporates. And I think we'd actually need to break that out into, the, into those different environments and look at 
the question of priorities and practices in those contexts to fully answer that as a question. And I, 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 I think that's, well, basically what I'm saying is I think that's beyond the scope of, of tonight. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I'm with you. I'm with you. But I mean, it, it's good that you raise it in that way to project for another conversation. But the complexity, if I can add a quick contrast, just perhaps this might be a closing thought from me in a way that the complexity that you're drawing out in contrast is often collapsed in the faith paradigm into some rather easy, yeah, maybe easy is a bit unfair. They're often quite intricate, but they are somewhat kind of, well, here are the answers. This is how you can understand Father, Son, Holy Spirit, group, individual, et cetera, et cetera. And it is rather intricate, and there's all sorts of stuff involved with that. But if if I, in this moment, if I orientate myself away from what we've just been talking about and the difficulty there, and it's not just difficulty, because there's also promise, right, that comes with grappling with that. But if I orientate away from that and I look, I physically shift my vision to the left and go, okay, if I look at the faith paradigm, Right now, that looks a lot more attractive in the immediate sense because I think there's some immediate answers and comfort. But that would stop not only the difficulty, which is, I think, the potentially the tendency to veer off left and go to the comfort, but it would also stop the challenge and the grappling and the potential creativity, curiosity. You know, there's that chaos order chaos reorder cycle which is so life-giving around what is this now if i don't have to grapple with the fickle the feelings of fickle nature or the actual experience of whatever this might be and i can just collapse it back into that other box and i might never get through that and actually actually entertain those questions and those statements and those wonderings and and see what comes Again, just constant reminder for me that it's important to not so much contrast, like perhaps that's bad language. I'm feeling like I'd like to move away from that more and more. It's not like a win-lose thing so much as this is where I would actually want to put my energy and my attention and not into that. And so I'm just differentiating in terms of what my orientation is going to be and where my energy will be, perhaps. And And that's important. I like that. I think that's very important. I agree with you. Yeah. I do think that a lot of this does start with expectation and it does start with the clarity that God does draw near and that every single individual by design has been made to recognize God and engage with God. Oh. But I, I mean, that that in no way answers the question though because it's it's hard from there. <laughs> And and I think it's to the heart, it's to the how too that we that 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 we've got to give our attention. Yeah. And and that how to in the context of the faith as intimacy paradigm means giving up our faith. It means betraying our faith. It means to say that my faith is not enough. I need the engagement. It's to say that my faith isn't fulfilling. I long for a deep connected experience with God. And in that sense, I think that's actually where real faith begins <laughs> because it's set aside, it's setting aside a paradigm of certainty that rests on God's absence 
or the recognition of God's absence as the place to hunger for God's connect, connection with God. And I think that's a, that's, that is the better place to be. I'm with you. And, and I think it's worth noting that, that, that there, there, there is a, there's a gap between those two positions that is filled with existential terror. I don't think I've come across anyone yet who's talked about this kind of shift in their life. In, in some different levels, you know, we talk about deconstruction, et cetera, and people move away from institution or other people guarding their faith. They ask different questions or whatever. Any shift like that is not a seamless, oh, well, I had the faith paradigm and then I moved to the relational paradigm and, I, you know, tripped joyfully into the, oh, the absence of God leads to the presence of God. Everything's wonderful. There's always a death of this previous space. And then there is a little gap around, in my mind at least, <laughs> unless I'm working myself back into the position of where I listen to your answers. So that requires some thinking perhaps. But I do think there's a terror on leaving behind this known thing and stepping out towards a yet unknown in a way towards a different towards a new and going okay well as you said like i have to acknowledge that the faith thing is not enough even if it's just for the pause of taking a breath before staying the next statement i think that is a terrifying thing often for people to make that shift i just want to acknowledge that that it's not it sounds when we talk about it like it's just a seamless switch from one to the other but that it is imminently and invaluably worthwhile and better, in my mind at least, than staying shackled to the faith paradigm. But rather actually have to stare these questions and these hard gaps and these spaces in the face and go, okay, what the hell are you? What, what is this other, this potential other? To, to the system that I've just kind of been swimming in, that I'm becoming, I'm starting to notice. And if that's clear, but I just thought it's worth just acknowledging that this this can be quite a terrifying shift. I think it's very valuable to acknowledge that because because one does start touching on the unknowns, and one does start, you know, setting aside some of the certainties that 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 makes it feel safe to be in the position of. You know, to be in the position of faith, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Urban Mystic relies on your support to do the work that we do. Please consider making a regular or one-stop contribution via the, the link to PayPal in the show notes. Please don't forget to like this episode, subscribe to the co- podcast, and leave a comment on your favorite listening platform.